I gradually became accustomed to questioning every assumption. Uh, I began to see that as basically what scholars do. I began to equate the scholarly mental frame with skepticism. Uh, and I argued this quite passionately over the years because it seems to me that if we're not skeptics, we're nothing. If we're not skeptics, we have no raison d'etre. Unless there's somebody there to question assumptions, then nobody's going to question them. Uh, and uh, therefore, whenever I see scholarship being seduced into conformism of one kind or another, or accepting uh, assumptions that are untested or unproven, and of course, unproven means untested, I have to oppose it. This season of Sound Expertise began with me asking a provocative question. Can musicology change the world? Now that we've reached the end of our season, I should probably admit that it was a pretty overblown premise, one that I was mainly using as a hook to get you to listen to our show. Changing the world is probably too big and unwieldy a framing through which to understand the vital, specific, and intricate work of music scholarship. But As I said then, and I'll say now, I do think we have something important to contribute. This is Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is the season two finale of a podcast where I talk to my fellow music scholars about their research, which I believe does truly matter. And if we don't always change the world, we can at least change people's world views. That is certainly what my guest today has done. Anyone who has read the many, many, many words he has written over the years has been forced to fundamentally reconsider their views on music and history. He comes across as a polemicist and intellectual combatant, but he is fundamentally a contextualizer, someone who believes deeply in the idea that music cannot be understood without grasping the social and political histories and ideologies that have accompanied it. My guest today is Richard Taruskin, professor emeritus at UC Berkeley and author of a preposterously large corpus of writing, from his run of controversial New York Times articles in the 1990s, to his five-volume Oxford History of Western Music, to his most recent book of essays, Cursed Questions, which came out last year. Professor Taruskin's work has been profoundly influential on my own. I probably would not have become a musicologist had I not encountered his writing in college, and on our broader field as well. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I certainly did. So I'd love to start with a question that comes up quite often in your newest book, and also, I guess, in in your research as a whole, which is the kind of role of the musicologist or the historian. can you talk a little bit about how you conceptualize the role of musicologist? The role? <laughs> I take it you mean the public role or the social role? Sure. I mean, you know, in the Oxford, you have a kind of specific thing, way of viewing what the historian does, for example. Um, well, all I can say is the historian writes history. Uh, and if he's lucky, he makes a little history. Uh, I thought you were getting at the, uh, well, it used to be my double life. 
Uh, I want to come back to your double life. Let's stick with the single, maybe the single life of, of how you conceptualize the historian who writes music history. Well, you know, my bag has always been contextualization um, and more or less uh, opposing the idea that uh, art is to be dealt with only on quote unquote its own terms, uh, because I don't believe that anything has its own terms. Uh, we make the terms. Uh, and we make the terms within our own horizon, you know, within our own context, uh, something to be taken into account and compared with the horizon or the context of whatever it is that we're studying. But this is, you know, very basic hermeneutics, right? You can find what I'm saying to you now in the work of Gadamer. But, uh, you know, it's still, maybe it's a measure of the backwardness of musicology, but it still sometimes seems to be a controversial position. Uh, the idea that everything must be contextualized and therefore everything must be relativized, including everything that we say. Um, and so I never presume to be telling the truth about anything. But I do hope to be always telling truths. That the article is the thing I want to reject, not the concept of truth itself. How did? Okay, and can you unpack that a little bit more? Like what? Where? Where you see the difference between those two? What is true is something that is not yet shown to be false. Uh, because, and here I guess I'm following Karl Popper. Uh, who, to me, uh, put it best, although he's not a fashionable name now, because unfortunately for him, Margaret Thatcher liked him. Uh, but um, I think he was uh, quite right to say that uh, we can only know that things are false. We cannot know that things are true. It's your old black swan problem, right? You know that. Um And so uh, all we can claim is that what we have uh, undertaken to um, to enunciate as true has so far passed the tests that we've made for it, uh, and it is not yet shown to be it's not yet shown to be false. Um, although it may well be shown to be false eventually, so we can't hold anything to be self-evidently true or eternally true, and of course we'll never say the last word of it anything which is nice, which means that we as a collective enterprise will never be out of business. Uh, we'll always be revising. Uh, I did my share of revising. Maybe I'll still you know, get to do a little more. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've lived long enough to be revised. Uh, <laughs> it's a never-ending process and a fascinating. So, in terms of kind of developing the idea of the music historian as someone who fundamentally contextualizes. How how did you actually come to that as a view of the music historian or musicologist or historian? Like what, what was musicology like when you were in graduate school, for example, that was not necessarily that view of, of, of what the role was? Musicology was a very much of an internalist thing when I was a student. Uh, you have no idea, you young people, uh, you have no idea how narrowly the field was defined in the 1960s when I was introduced to it. 
Um, that's why, you know, I take a, a somewhat jaded view of all the clamor for inclusion nowadays. Uh, I'm all for the inclusion of uh, racial minorities and women who are majority after all. Um, in my day, it was already a big battle to include a bit of Russian music uh, in the curriculum. Uh, 20th century music was not studied. Uh, the jury wasn't, was still out on 20th century music, you know, but there were no settled views. And musicology fancied in those days that it dealt only in settled views. Um, so 20th century music was not really like the musicology yet. And European music, but only Western European music. I was very strongly advised not to do a dissertation on Russian opera. Uh, but I did it anyway because it got me over to Russia, where I had relatives I wanted to meet. So I had an ulterior motive. Uh, and then I expected I would have a difficult career. Um, but fortunately for me, things began to broaden. Uh, not initially because of my efforts, but I was able to benefit from that. Broader. Um, I think the first person who uh, helped me that way was Joseph Kerman. Uh, who, um, I've told this story, but uh, maybe it's worth alluding to again. When I finished my dissertation, I had what I thought was going to be a white elephant. It was on Russian opera in the 1860s. Uh, a whole bunch of uh, composers uh, who people were just amazed when I told them in Russia that I was studying them because nobody was interested. And I'm not sure. You might have heard of Alexander Darkomyshky. Uh, who wrote an opera called The Stone Guest, which um, Peter Sickley took, uh, took off on, The Stone Guest, you might remember. Uh, it's, this is Don Giovanni's story. Uh, his name is somewhat known, but Alexander Sirov, who's ever heard of him, says there are three. Well, yeah, people have heard of him because he's the fifth member of the five. Uh, but I was studying composers who were not considered to be interesting, even in Russia. Um, and in this country, certainly uh, not interesting. And so I thought my dissertation was going to go nowhere, but I wrote it anyway. Uh, and then one day I read an ad, I believe it was in JAM, the Journal of the American Musicological Society, uh, that there was a new journal being launched in California called 19th Century Music. Uh, and the, uh, the ad said that uh, it's time now to broaden musicology to include the music. I think they put it music that people actually listen to. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so uh, even though mine was not music anybody listened to, it was from the right century for this magazine. So I wrote a version of the first chapter of my dissertation uh, that made it self-sufficient. And I sent it in with a prayer, and my prayer was answered. I got a letter saying, oh, thank you very much. We'll put it in the first issue. Uh, it came out in the second issue, but I wasn't counted. Uh, and that's how uh, I hooked up with Joe Kerman, and that's how I hooked up with 19th Century Music, which was my home for a while. Um, I think I had four articles in the first, 12 issues of um, 19th century music. And one of them was split into two issues. So I had five in the first 12 issues of this journal. Um, and uh, that gave me a little toehold, a bit of a reputation. And Russian music 
therefore was sort of in, as if it hadn't been before. And so to maybe jump back a little bit, since we're, we're kind of fleshing out this, this earlier history, like at what was the kind of trajectory towards musicology for you? Um, like, how did you first kind of realize that was a thing that one could study? I mean, I know you spent a long time at Columbia for, for undergrad and grad school. I was at Columbia 26 years, man and boy, undergrad, grad, and up to associate professor. Um, Musicology uh, was always sort of in my consciousness. Music history, I was always interested. I had read a lot of the material that um, later was assigned to me, uh, even before I got to college. Uh, I remember reading Lang's book, Paul um, Lang. He became my professor because he was in Columbia, but uh, he had a book called Music in Western Civilization, uh, which I read when I was in high school. Uh, and if you want to know how musicology defined itself in those days, that's the book to read. Uh, you'll see that it stops at the 20th century and it never deals with anything uh, to the east of Vienna or to the west of the Azores uh, and, uh, or to the north of Germany or to the south of France, Italy, I should say, to the south of Naples. Um, it was a very, very uh, well-defined field, but nowadays it would be considered intolerably narrow. Anyway, it was something I was interested in already. I was also, uh, you know, interested in making music. I played piano and cello. I went to the High School of Music and Art uh, in New York, which um, was a, a special school for people who were interested in either music or art. Although it was not a professional training we got there. Um, but I did study music theory and I studied composition. And um, I was interested in composition as an undergraduate as well as music history. Uh, and when I started graduate school, I was doing both for a couple of years. So you were composing at Columbia in what? The, in the 70s, 60s? Yes, but you wouldn't know that I was at Columbia from the music I wrote. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a very heated time to be composing there. Electronic music, so uh, that sound had a Columbia sound. But the undergraduate composing uh, was not quite as doctrinaire as the graduate school composing. I had a wonderful composition teacher called the Otto Looning. Oh, of course. He uh, lived to be 96, so he didn't die all that long ago, but he and I were close, and he was a wonderful teacher of composition and very, very welcoming, no matter what your music was like. Um, and uh, oh, I just enjoyed his classes so much, I stayed with it. And he continued to be on the faculty when I was in graduate school, although I also came into contact with less so uh, anyhow, that was, yeah, I was very interested in composition. And for two years, I did both. And then I discovered the viola da gamba and became fascinated with performing early music. And I came within a hair's breadth of making that my career. Uh, because the New York Pomusica, um, I don't know if you remember what that was, but it was- an I'm open, aware of it, yeah. Yeah, well, it had folded by the time you were, maybe by the time you were born. Now that I think, uh, but it was the one early music ensemble that could pay its members really wait. So it was the one real professional gig in early music in the 1960s. 
Um, and uh, they announced an opening for a string player. Uh, they didn't specify the instrument, so both viol players and lutenists applied. And I auditioned. And uh, they let it be known that it was down to the top viol player and the top lutenist. That was me and one of my best friends. Uh, and they kept us waiting a month while they made up their minds. And then they took her. Uh, and I was dashed. And I went back to graduate school. And, you know, I said, all right, I'm not going to be a music player for a living. But then I was given the Columbia Collegium Musicum to run. Right, right. That opened up whole new vistas for me. And I became a conductor by the seat of my pants. So that was a big deal for me, performing early music. Um, and uh, if I had been given the Promusica job, I would have taken it. Mm. So there was, a, there was an arc towards a life in performance that, that kind of closed I off. I probably would not have finished my degree in Columbia. I wouldn't have finished it so soon. And there's a PS to this. Um, about 12 years later, when I had finished my degree in Columbia and had joined the faculty, I was actually the director of graduate studies, which meant I was the one to whom you addressed letters of application. Guess who applied? My friend, the lutenist, who <laughs> now out of a job because the pro musica had disbanded and there was no professional organization to take its place. So I thought, ah, but for the grace of God. Karma. My apparent failure to get that job was not in disguise. And so from early, what was the kind of pivot at that point from early music to Russian music? Was it, or was it a pivot or was it both at the same time? But i tell you, if you have two minutes, I'll tell you a story. I think you have the time. I have uh, the time. <laughs> um, I had these two interests. I had my dissertation in Russian opera. Uh, I was interested in Russian opera partly because I had relatives in Moscow. It sent me a lot of records, so I knew lots of operas that nobody else knew at the time in America. Uh, so I had a strong interest in Russian music. Um, and I also was interested in performing early music. And there was no point of contact between the two, um, the two fields. I never expected there would be one, but there was one, and it was quite momentous. Um, when I decided I would work on Stravinsky, uh, who was a Russian composer whose career took place, as you know, outside of Russia, so I wouldn't have to go to Russia to do the research. And besides, uh, Stravinsky was not kosher in Russia in those days. Uh, so, and there was very little to do uh, with Stravinsky forces in Russia because he didn't write anything after the fiber in Russia. Um, but I was working on Stravinsky, and that meant I was working on modernism. Uh, and I wanted to get a handle on the theory of modernism. As you know by now, the best way to learn something is to teach it. Uh, so I announced a seminar on modernism. And it was when I was reading up on, um, well, the early theorists of modernism. I remember particularly Ortega y Gasset, who wrote a book called The Dehumanization of Art. And there was a, a British, uh, English uh, theorist named T.E. Hume, 
who was less well known because he died a young man uh, as a soldier in World War One. Uh, but his work was um, collected and published as a book called Speculations. And when I read Hume and Ortega in preparation for doing this course on modernism, I realized that I was actually reading uh, the whole theory of early music historical performance. Um, and that's when I had this idea that early music performance was really a modernist idea not actually a historical idea, and I wrote what was widely commented on paper about this, and now that idea is more or less well accepted uh, as part of the conventional wisdom that uh, early music was such a hit because it answered to modernist ideals rather than historical ones. And so was that your first actual scholarship on early music? Was that kind of intervention? I'm trying to remember. Uh, well, you know, I had done other things, um, editing a lot of music. If you will go back to, there was something called the Hewitt Catalog of Asians. Later on, it became the Atkins Catalog. It, the uh, American Musicological Society put this out. You would announce a dissertation topic. And I originally announced the topic, uh, the masses of Heinrich Isaac. Can you uh, because that was what you studied uh, in musicology in those days. Uh, you, so many dissertations were about Kleinmeister. He wasn't a Kleinmeister, he's up, but uh, so I was only taking a portion of his If you would um, study, and we were talking about this earlier, uh, the idea of internal, uh, internalist or contextualized study, what you mo mostly did was you would uh, transcribe a whole lot of music and you would do what was called the style criticism. Uh, you would place it within the history of evolving style without any um, attention paid to any external factor, the idea being that art evolves uh, according to its own rules. That, of course, is what autonomous means. Uh, and uh, so the approach you took, and that was the method you applied. Um, when that started to get questioned, then musicology began to So how did you start? I mean, how did you actually come to the realization then around context? If you kind of started out with this dissertation that was more in the kind of traditionalist mode. Um, I spoke to Susan McClary for the podcast a few months ago, and she kind of described a very similar arc of doing what started as a Kleinmeister project and became something very different. Well, gee, um, it didn't hit me as a blinding revelation at any point. Um, but, you know, I, when I was doing my work on Russian opera, I was working a great deal with questions like censorship, uh, which was, of course, the wider world thing on the course of art. Uh, and I was also talking about the rise of institutions that would support uh, the practice of well, what we now call Western art music uh, in Russia. Uh, it was something that was only first imported into Russia in the 18th century. Uh, and Russians only could be trained in it started in the 1860s, exactly the time when I was working on. Uh, so the idea that institutions had in the art was uh, hard to avoid. 
I spent a year in Soviet Russia um, as an exchange uh, where I saw the interaction of art and politics in a much more overt way than one saw it in America. But you know, when I came back to America, I saw that there was a tremendous amount of uh, interaction here too, although it was not as overt. Um, and I realized, I think I maybe the first musicologist to talk about the Cold War as a period in music history. Um, because I saw that very clearly when I came back from Russia, uh, that we also had pressures on us uh, to conform. Uh, it wasn't applied directly by the government, although in some ways it was. I'll never forget it. Um, when I was in graduate school, the Vietnam War was on. And there were a lot of people who stayed in graduate school because the Vietnam War was on, as you might know. Um, and the man who was in charge of the selective service, that is the draft, in those days was a man named General Hershey. And I remember an interview with him on television where he said that uh, the selective service was uh, one of the things that um, had an impact on, an indirect impact on society uh, in a way that was comparable to what might be called social engineering. And he said, you know, people choose, for example, fields of study depending on uh, what will gain them uh, recognition of being an essential field, you know, um, so that that could be offered in lieu of military service. And he said, so if you're doing something in nuclear physics, of course, we will think of you as uh, essential. Whereas if you're studying something like music, <laughs> and I thought, oh boy, thank you very much. But I realized, yeah, there are pressures on us. There are pressures on us. And um, there was pressure on us, I think. The reason why there was this, what you now... Um, obviously have in your mind is a stereotype of university music of, of that period, you asked me about it before, uh, being very much dominated by uh, 12-tone composition and, uh, you know, or other forms of uh, serial uh, organization. Uh, and it was a sort of mandatory thing in universities in those days. That was also a Cold War idea. That is how we prove our freedom, our creative freedom by conforming to this stereotype. Uh, obviously, that's a paradox. Obviously, that's, uh, you know, uh, a covert value or a covert pressure. I began to be aware of these things. And I began to see that, uh, and oh, in the 1970s, Rose Subotnik began publicizing the work of Theodore uh, Adorno, somebody who I have mostly opposed in my own work uh, because his I think his work was doctrinaire and also quite covertly snobbish, uh, very elitist, although he pretended to be otherwise. Um, so, although I don't end up agreeing with him, uh, as it's the cliche about Adorno, well, at least he asked the right question. And when people say that, I always say, well, have you ever seen his answers? Uh, <laughs> 
He did ask those questions, and we began thinking about those questions, partly because Rose was bringing them to our attention. Uh, so, yes, I was living through a time of ferment, a time of ferment which came after my official studies world. And I was glad to benefit from them. And, you know, the the idea, which I feel like we've kind of been talking about basically the whole time of of being able to kind of understand and pull out these underlying ideologies from purported ideas of autonomy or universality and music. That's already an ideology. <laughs> but yeah, so right, exactly, of course. Um, you know, to a certain degree that came out of your, the, the some of the, I think, revelations you had about the relationship between kind of how Russian music was treated in the context of the 19th century. Can you talk a little bit about how you became more aware of basically abstract instrumental music being not necessarily the main thing, but a result of kind of a German nationalist romantic project? That, if I worded that question poorly enough? That didn't come out of my dissertation, which was about opera. Right. Um, uh, but some, I mean, but the, but the idea of Russia as a kind of periphery to a central, a more central tradition came out of your dissertation too, right? I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, what I actually ended up doing was opposing this idea that there was some kind of a mystical essence called Russian, uh, that found an outlet in uh, 19th century instrumental music in, uh, composed in Russia. It was very important to the Russians to posit such a thing because it gave them a reason to uh, be taken seriously uh, outside of Russia. Uh, but the very fact that it was an aspect of their exporting their music uh, that made me, they originally gave me a kind of jaundiced view of this idea of the national essence. And of course, all essentialism uh, is something that I've made a profession of opposing. Um, you know, uh, nationalism is something that I think Jews are tend to be rather well aware of because it's nationalism is never good for the Jews. Uh, even when they became nationalists, you know, uh, they called it Zionism. Uh, but that only brought more problems, I think, uh, to their history. Um, so nationalism was something I always found suspect. In that, you might say I have something in common with Marxists, uh, for whom nationalism is one of the uh, basic false consciousness consciousnesses. Um, yeah, so uh, I gradually became accustomed to questioning every assumption. Uh, I began to see that as basically what scholars do. Uh, I began to equate the scholarly mental frame with skepticism. Uh, and I argued this quite passionately over the years because it seems to me that if we're not skeptics, we're nothing. If we're not skeptics, we have no raison d'etre. Uh, unless there's somebody there to question assumptions, then nobody's going to question them. Uh, and uh, therefore, whenever I see scholarship being seduced into conformism of one kind or another, or accepting uh, assumptions that are untested or unproven, and of course, unproven means untested, um, I have to oppose it. Uh, very often, the assumptions that are untested are very attractive politically. 
Uh, and that's one of the ways in which scholarship, I think, can be seduced into doing something which is essentially unscholarly. Uh, if you have a desirable political um, end in mind, uh, you'll skew your scholarship to produce a good result. Uh, that's a hard one to resist, and therefore I feel it's very important to resist. And that's why I made a few uh, somewhat uh, skeptical remarks about all of the pressure for inclusion. Uh, at, that is our civilized now in, in the color, well, in the humanities generally. Uh, and I therefore find it important to uh, bring up the question of what is sacrificed or what is lost when you gain whatever it is. So, I mean, the idea of skepticism is that a point in your intellectual trajectory, like where where you where that snapped into place for you? Is that like something that goes back to you know I don't know high school and and just your your own perspective as an intellectual, not just a musicologist or like because I mean it's so you know I I spent a lot of time reading a lot of your work in the last few weeks just having read pretty much all of it already anyway you know it's it's obviously the the probably the singular through line um, as you've kind of just said too. By the time I was writing the stuff you were reading, I had come to that position. I was a rather obedient student, I have to say. Uh, I looked up to my teachers, never worth looking up to. They were very considerable people, uh, although they are not people who are now given a whole lot of respect. We even remember very well. I don't think anybody reads P.H. Lang anymore. Uh, although his book is still in print, Western civilization. I don't think that he's considered to be an important person in the history of musicology anymore, but he was certainly important then. And I did not question him while he was my teacher. Um, and he was very helpful to me, as a matter of fact. You know, he was um, he was a he was an octopus. He had tentacles everywhere. He was the uh, music critic for the New York Herald Tribune. He was the editor of the Musical Quarterly. He was the president of the International Musicological Society. Um, and, uh, well, my very first publication was a seminar paper I wrote for him on Darkomushki, as a matter of fact. That's what got me into studying what. Uh, but I gave it in his seminar. And when you were in Lang's seminar, you had a little pipeline to the Musical Quarterly. And it was published there in 1970, when I was 25 years old. Please don't read it. Uh, <laughs> but that was my first publication, and it was because of Lang. And uh, so, you know, I felt, and because he liked my work, I felt special, and I was not inclined to question. The questioning came later. Uh, and it came about through the course, in the course of actual work actual independent work, you know, so it was something that was uh, endogenous to my activity as a musicologist. And therefore, I think it had a certain, you know, urgency and a certain genuineness that yeah. it would have had, had I been taught it, uh, as people are now taught, as I teach. You know, I teach my be more like what I am now, obviously, than what Lang was like. And if they're good little boys and girls, then they'll be nice little skeptics, right? <laughs> uh, sometimes I'm brought up short toward the end of my teaching career at Berkeley when I would say things like, 
don't take things on faith. Don't follow authority. And I would see everybody copying down in their notebooks, don't follow authority. Uh, <laughs> so I would joke about it with the class, you know. I didn't want them to take me as an authority because that's completely against what I what I preach, you know. Uh, and so, well, I, as you know from reading me, if you're going to say things that are going to be provocative, controversial, unpopular, you have to say them in a humorous way. You got to keep them laughing. So I tried to keep my classes laughing too, even as I was indoctrinating them. I mean the the kind of the way that you, I guess, I don't know if it's find yourself in these controversies or ignite these controversies. Um, you know, whether it's the Shostakovich or thing or the Klinghoffer thing or the early music authenticity thing. I don't think I ignited any of those things. Klinghoffer was there before I said boo about it. Uh, it's just about because of a set of falsified memoirs, uh, which was there before I got into it. Uh, no, I'm a, I'm a bit of a whistleblower. And um, for this, you don't get, you know, popularity done. Uh, but I'm undeterred. I think that's an important thing. I think that is actually the role of, you ask me, what's my role as a musicologist? There you got it. Yeah. My role is to be a contrarian. My role is to be a skeptic. My role is to not let anything pass unexamined. Um, and, you know, uh, I get... Isn't it amazing that thing you referred to, Klinghoffer? You know, that was 2001. That's 20 years ago I wrote that piece in which I, um, uh, in which I denied the claim that that opera is even handed in his treatment of the uh, context of Israelis and Palestinians. And there isn't a piece that's written about Klinghoffer now that doesn't and usually in some unfavorable context, uh, that peace of mind, which means that that peace is very effective to get under people's skin. Um, and I think it's because I was correct. You don't uh, have a lasting effect if you're uh, easily laughed off. Do you, are there interventions like that that you regret in some way of, of feeling like you got under someone's skin, but actually you and didn't. I, why would I regret it? Not, not, not the Klinghoffer in particular, but if there are other things that in the past, the controversies that you've involved yourself in, you've come to realize maybe this was actually, I, I had it wrong. Um, the important controversies, I still believe I had it right. The one about uh, what is the source of uh, the philosophy of early music performance, the historical, Performance practice, I think I had that one right. Uh, I think I had the, uh, the Klinghopper uh, thing I had right. And the one about Shostakovich and the, the bulk of testimony, I think I had right. Um, I don't know. There were things I had wrong, but they were things that are not going to exercise the world. Uh, I had a, uh, I, I, let me think. Um, I proposed the wrong attribution for an anonymous 15th century mass. La grande plaisir. I regret I'll never live it down. <laughs> It'll be on your on your gravestone. Another one, another uh, controversy that uh, I, 
that has lived is the one that I had with Alan Fork about uh, the um, efficacy of what he called Pitt's uh, class set analysis, um, which I said was not a good method of analysis because it didn't prove anything. Um, I noticed that that method is no longer taught. Uh, as part of every music theory program, you know, even at Yale, even at some institution. So uh, I think I got the big ones right. So the, you know, you lay out a point in, I think it's in the Ox, or it might, it might be in, in, um, in. Do you in call the, it good? So do I. <laughs> only because that's what you call it. Um, it might, or it might be in the in the Nicht uh, Blutbeflecht, the essay, which is reprinted in your new book about kind of saying that that espousing positions in a debate is not the role of the historian, but of the critic. And so, like, what when do you put the critic hat on versus the kind of historian hat on? How do you kind of balance the the New York Times versus the the Musical Quarterly? Um, well, historian is more a reporter. Uh, when I'm dealing with controversies as a historian, I say I give the full range of opinions, including my own sometimes. And, you know, um, people who read the footnotes in the arc have discovered this. And occasionally when I say, and one critic said, blah, blah, blah. And if you go back to the end notes, you'll find that that critic was me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I'm not uh, speaking on behalf of that position. And I made a claim in the uh, introduction to the Ox uh, that uh, those who don't know my position on things like the uh, memoirs of Tchaikovich uh, won't find out from reading the Ox. They'd have to know it from elsewhere. Um, and people have poo-pooed this uh, claim of mine, saying, oh, of course we know. But that's because they already knew. You know, you'd have to find somebody who never read anything else I wrote to, to test this on. I don't know any people like that yet. <laughs> people you don't start with generally the thou- many thousands of, of pages, volumes before reading your shorter stuff. So, <laughs> A lot of people who read The Ox have already read the Times and so on, so they know some of my actual opinions. But I try not to write in light of my opinions. Uh, I also try not to write in terms of what I like or dislike, although this is un- uh, also something that people don't believe. Uh, they think they can tell what I like and what I don't like by the way I treat it in the arts, but they're always wrong about that. Is there an example of of that? Everybody thinks I hate Schoenberg, um, whereas I love a lot of Schoenberg music. I love Pierre Lunaire and... Uh, I, that piano suite of the 25, and, you know, Gore Leader, and um, you know, there are also pieces of Schoenberg's I don't like so much, but uh, not prejudiced against 12 tone music or music. Um, although people think I am because I do not give it a privilege in my account the way it had always given a privilege in previous accounts. Um, and so when they don't see the privilege, they think that I'm somehow uh, trying to um, negate the importance of the music. Certainly not. Anything that gets a whole chapter in the ox, obviously, I think it's important. The, you know, one of the things that I've, I was, you know, kind of trying to think about, um, especially, you know, thinking about your work versus um, uh, Susan McClary's, and I, and I read, 
don't remember what essay of yours where you you kind of review her her career, which was really fascinating too. We did it almost in successive issues of Music and Letters. She reviewed the and then I wrote that piece on her. So. Right. Oh, I didn't realize that. I'll have to look for her review. But if you could talk a little bit about the the kind of role of musical analysis in how you conceptualize the role of the of the historian and something like the ox. So, like, you know, given that you are you are cautious of the idea that interpreters can kind of come up with specific meanings of artworks via analyzing them, which is you know one of your I think beefs with the the so called new musicology. Like, how do you conceptualize? No, I don't deny that at all. I think that, you know, whenever you, if you ever propose to me, as you seem almost to be doing now, a, a choice between this and that, uh, I always say, no, 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 both and, both and, never. Uh, and that's how you end up writing 4,000 page books. <laughs> because you have everything. There's a lot of analysis in the art. Uh, oh, I know, yeah. Uh, and, and people often say that I'm against analysis uh, because I have been against certain dogmatic methods of analysis, the 40 and one. Also, I have some skepticism about the Shankarian methods, although I benefited from them. When I was an undergraduate, I studied Shankar analysis without it being called Shankar analysis. It was just called, this is music. This is the way music works. Uh, and I benefited from it in a way that uh, I don't see many people talking about. When you study the Schenker method and you um, are lo looking at a piece in a rather global way, uh, and that a whole piece can be viewed as a, uh, as a single chord progression, uh, you do learn to listen to the piece in a long-range way. There's terrific ear training uh, for learning how harmony determines form. Uh, and then later on, when I taught music history, uh, I began to conceptualize the whole period from 1680 to 1880, I used to say. It was the period when harmony directed form, or form was created by harmony. Uh, and that's an insight you get from Schenker. Um, and of course, that period in music history from the late 17th century to the late 19th century is the period where his analysis works. And therefore, he thought it was the period when music was good. And anything earlier and anything later was already falling away from the ideal. I don't accept that idea that it's better when it works this way, but I do accept that this is how that music works. And that Schenker is a very good way of finding out that it works that way. Um, like, how, how, how have you kind of looked to, let's say, younger scholars or even just kind of what's been happening in the field for the last, you know, 10 or, 10 or 20 years? What do you kind of see as important currents going on right now? What do you see as, do you see your own kind of legacy of skeptics going off and doing their own skeptical thing? Um, well, I do feel I have a legacy because, you know, I supervise a lot of dissertations. Um, one time, the chair of the department called me over in the hall and said, hey, I got something to show you, and took me into his office, and he'd been doing stats. And it turned out that I had the most dissertations in the history of our department. Wow. Partly because I always taught that introductory course, uh, where we did nothing but luxuriate, as I put it in the book you just read, in the cursed questions of the discipline. Uh, and so students who had enjoyed that class often asked me to then 
work with them on their dissertations. So we ended up with 40, 40 Doktorkinder, uh, which in the humanities is a big, big number. And now when I go to the AMS meetings, I never give a paper myself because I always want to be free to go around and see where my kids are working or asking. Oh, and they're always doing something conspicuous. And many of them, you know, we had a very good bunch of grad students in Berkeley. Uh, and it's still, I think, a good brand. And um, so these are, students are now doing well in the profession. And many of them are doing the kind of thing that I gave them a nudge towards doing, which is contextualization. The thing I see happening in musicology that is most heartening to me is convergence between musicology and ethnomusicology. Um, it used to be that you would define the difference between the two, you know, the unprefixed, as I like to say, because what else are you going to call it? Uh, so the unprefixed and the ethno uh, is that the ethno sees things in a social setting, and the unprefixed musicology sees things without it, as autonomous artwork. That no longer is the case. Uh, and so we're now using methods which are formally associated with ethnomusicology to contextualize music. Uh, but that's the direction I see musicology going towards the social, towards the anthropological. And that's good because I like to see more integrated. Um, again, it's a both and sort of thing. You look at music internally or externally. No, no, you look at it both ways. Uh, I used to always tell my students, anything you do as a musicologist ought to require a musicologist to do it. In other words, don't just look at the social side of things, but uh, see if you can relate that to the way the music actually works internally. Um, and if you can actually use music analysis to prove a point about society, well, that's terrific. That uh, means that you are doing some kind of integrated work. You know, we've kind of talked briefly about the the kind of more public work that you've done, you know, writing for the New York Times, uh, New Republic, other places. But, you know, the idea in 2021 that uh, kind of, you know, writing several thousand words for a major newspaper about early music and authenticity is going to ignite some big cultural battle seems seems very distant in the past. Like, how do you conceptualize the, the relevancy of musicology out, outside of the discipline now? It's true that uh, we don't have the platforms now that I had. I got in at the tail end of it. I always got into the tail end of things, I think. Um, but when I started, yeah, it's true. When I started at uh, the Times, first of all, there was that wonderful, wonderful editor, Jim Astrider. There's nobody like him now at the Times, alas. I've written a couple of things after Astrider, and it isn't the same. Uh, also, you don't have much space. Uh, when I started writing the, the longest piece I ever wrote for the Times, I think it was about 3,500 words. Uh, and now I think if you get 2,000, you're pushing it. Yeah, 1,500 uh, is generally the. 1,750, yeah. that's more or less. 1,750 is exactly half of 3,500. Uh, so that's, you're down to a haiku length. Uh, and. Um, now, I think the limit on the amount of um, technical discussion you can do is much more limited. I notice now that no name has ever dropped without an identification. 
So, you know, the German composer Ludwig von Beethoven, uh, <laughs> you have to say that sort of thing now. Uh, so it's harder, but no, I still think it's worth doing. Um, whether I'm going to, uh, whether anybody is going to ignite big cultural controversies by writing about classical music for the times, I don't say that's impossible. It wasn't the usual thing, even when I did it. I wrote a few pieces early for the times that uh, received so much bad mail that they filled the whole letters column. They don't even have one anymore. Leisure. <laughs> But they had one back in the 1990s when I started writing for the Times. Um, and four times something I wrote filled up their letters column, the letters, the whole mailbag, you know. They loved that at the time, obviously, because controversies were sales papers, you know. Um, and the idea that a classical piece could be that controversial was great for them and for me. Um, I don't know that that would happen now, but we wouldn't be able to test it because they don't have letters anymore. Um, that's a, another measure, I think, of the lessened cultural clout that writing for print media has. Of course, now there are blogs, uh, and there are people who exert a good deal of influence through their blogs or podcasts, like Will Robbins. <laughs> I've already paid a little tribute, you know, occasionally when I've uh, people have asked me, "Is there anybody doing what you used to do?" No, oh, I appreciate that. That's very you generous. You used to write for the time quite regularly. Yes, uh, it's a little different now, and I've actually teased you about this, haven't I? That uh, you're not writing anything that's going to make anybody angry. Yes, it's true. Uh, but we're also different people, so I know. But it's when you make them angry that you accomplished something. <laughs> I, always, I always felt that it was an important thing that I did, for example, when I wrote about the death of Klinghoffer and made so many people so angry. I thought I had done a, well, shall I say, I've done a mitzvah, you know, I've done a good deed uh, because I got people really exercised about a serious work of art. Work of art that I don't think of as that good, but it was a serious work of art. Um, and uh, the idea that writing about classical music makes people care so much means you're making them care about classical music. Mm, that's a good point, yeah. And that's an important thing. Uh, the other time I made people that angry was when I wrote a piece about Prokofiev, uh, and I, made, I put the emphasis on his uh, Stalinist piece. And I said, let's not have those pieces anymore in concert halls. Uh, and then I was, of course, portrayed as a censor. Um, and I, uh, both in that case and in the case of Klingharfer, I said, you know, uh, there's one, censorship is one thing, discretion is another thing. Uh, you can stigmatize discretion as self-censorship, if you like. Uh, but in that case, any act of kindness or any act of courtesy is up for derision from and it's you know, uh, and it seems to me that the one can honor um, the idea that certain things there should be forbearance, certain things ought not to be performed because uh, out of respect for victims, and that certainly goes for Stalin, uh, I think, and that certainly goes for people, victims like Klinghoffer. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much. This was really wonderful. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. 
was a pleasure for me as well. So thanks. So that's a wrap on season two. I think it was pretty awesome. Many, many thanks to Richard Taruskin, Professor Emeritus at UC Berkeley, for that incredible conversation. And I'm so, so, so grateful to all our guests over the past few months for providing rich and candid insights into their scholarship and thinking. You can check out more of Professor Taruskin's work up on our website, soundexpertise.org. A few big thank yous to people without whom this season wouldn't have happened. First up, my incredible producer, D. Edward Davis, whose keen ear makes this podcast sound so good every week, from his theme music to his detailed audio engineering. Last week, we finally got to hang out in person for the very first time since Sound Expertise started. We ate pizza, and it was awesome. Check out more of his work on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. Second is musicologist Andrew Del Antonio, who was not only a wonderful guest this season, check out his episode with Sarah Hafley on teaching music history, but has been doing amazing work volunteering his time to prepare written transcripts for all our episodes to make them more accessible. Thank you, Andrew. Many thanks to Julia Hurst, whose awesome logo gives our show an extra visual pop. And huge thanks to the Society for American Music, which just awarded Sound Expertise its first grant a few weeks ago. We received a sight and sound subvention, which will help defer some of our production costs for this past season. I'm eternally grateful to my wife, Emily, for her support, and to my almost one-year-old son, Ira, for continuing to be a pretty good napper and being, of course, the cutest baby in the world. Finally, an extra, extra, extra big round of thanks to our amazing community of listeners. We're so grateful that hundreds of people tune in to hear sound expertise each week from around the world. And an extra special shout out to our listeners from the World of Music Scholarship, who remain our most active fans. So, what about the future of sound expertise now that season two is a wrap? First up, stay tuned for a bonus episode that will air on a to-be-determined Tuesday coming up soon, a call-in show that Eddie and I put together about how music scholars have experienced the challenges of the pandemic year. We may drop some occasional bonus episodes later this year as well. And yes, stay tuned for season three at some point in 2022. I don't know exactly when, but I do know that we'll have some awesome guests and topics, probably some cool new formats, and a lot more. Thanks for listening, and see you then.